name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. People cling together for many reasons. One is to make love, the other is to make war. The two do not appear dissimilar to the casual observer, if such a thing is possible. The goal of each, however, could not be more different. In the one, two actors enabling one another to act as one in synchronized motion and emotion, and the other one actor acting to disable another one to render that one motionless. Well, maybe these two areas do have some uh, intercommunication. But again, whether love or war, both can appear agonistic. Look for all the world like struggle, like wrestling. We have a word about wrestling today in our text. Now, wrestling has never been a passion of mine. It's never been an interest. I can't understand anybody with an interest in wrestling. <laughs> Yet I often will say that I am wrestling with something, which means struggling to pin something down. That's what wrestling is all about. You're trying to pin your opponent down, immobilize him or her on the floor. It means I'm trying to pin something down to clarify a problem, to fund, uh, find rather a solution, to figure something out, I'm trying to bring some process that's occupying me to an end in a resolution. The arena of this uh, wrestling can be intellectual or it can be emotional, matter of thought or a matter of feeling. But the goal is for me to pit my strength against something strong enough to put up a resistance, but not strong enough in the end to prevail. If there's too little resistance, there is no struggle. If there's too much resistance, it's not a struggle either. It's like throwing oneself against brick brick wall. Now ask any promoter of wrestling this one thing, and then we'll drop the analogy. This one thing, what makes a wrestling match. What makes a match interesting and what brings people out in the first place? Is it bringing together a pair whose uh, strengths are so equally matched it, it, so that either opponent might conceivably win? Or is it creating a very uneven mismatch in which victory comes swiftly and decisively to one or the other? Now the answer to that will be there is no contest we want the almost equal match. We want people hanging on the edge of their seats, waiting to see who's gonna get out of here alive. I say this because we are looking today at struggling, literally wrestling with God, with a struggle that pits God against two. There is no other God, so who can you match God with? Well, in this case, it's with human beings, the creator against one of his creatures. No contest, you might say. Yet in both of today's examples, we are looking at matches in which there was quite a contest and in which the human creature decisively won. Were the matches rigged, you might ask, the results preordained? Is God really a Calvinist? 
What kind of match is that? Well, if you watch wrestling on TV, you know. <laughs> well, indeed, it's all run by Calvinists. No, we're not, we're not going there. <laughs> but giving the creator even, how does he not have an advantage, the creator? He knows the ins and outs of his opponents. He knows all their strategies and capabilities before they try anything. He knows exactly how they've been coached to say nothing of a certain power differential. Again, you will ask, what kind of wrestling is this? Wrestling may be more like it, much like the way a mother dog plays with a puppy or a father with a child, play wrestling again, like what you see on TV. Has a teaching function, but it's not for real, it's all in fun. Children and parents struggle, however, for real in other ways. A battle of wills, usually, in which the parent must be the one to stamp her foot metaphorically or bring down her fist to shut down and rein in the child again, just analogically, followed by threats and rage and slamming of doors, all very real. I can attest to that. In these biblical scenarios, however, none of this happens because the child wins, if you like, against the parent with the parent's blessing. Literally, sounds like a family from, not from heaven, let's say. Well, we better examine them. Let's take them one by one. First, God versus Jacob, struggling for a blessing. Jacob has spent his whole life struggling for blessings, blessings that weren't his to get. He uses foul means or fair, usually foul. And he's coached initially by his mother, who very much wants him to succeed in outright deception against his father, not unheard of in family situations, as when he gets by hook and by crook the blessing that his father Isaac meant to pronounce on his brother Esau. The blessing in this case means the acknowledgement that the eldest son is going to be the one to carry the family farm forward. So it's like empowering, anointing, consecrating the eldest son uh, to take over the role. Esau is the firstborn only by a few minutes, however. And even there, as he came out of the womb, his brother Isaac came right after because his brother Isaac was literally grasping onto his heel. As he started, so he continued. And later on, the brother Isaac will extort in a weak moment the birthright, the inheritance from the same brother Esau over a mess of pottage, a plate of red lentil stew. Dirty tricks, not fair play. Now, for 20 years since that rather costly plate of stew, Isaac has been an exile of the sorts on the run from his brother Esau, who has not going to take this thing in his stride. There are consequences, even to dirty tricks, but God has been tracking him too, stalking him rather, because this is one of those many examples in the Bible, especially the Old Testament, when everybody does the wrong thing for the wrong reason, and still, in the end, God makes it all work out right for his glory and even for their good. That's what we're counting on in the Bible. That's how heroes of faith operate. 
God has been tracking Isaac, stalking him, and Isaac is now trying to catch up with Esau, because in the 20 years, he's had a chance to repent. That ruthless ego of his, which sought to win every battle at any cost, winning was everything, has been broken by life. He wants to find his brother and tell him he's sorry. The three of them, God, Esau, and Isaac, are about to converge. God gets there first. There was that vision of the stairway to heaven at Bethel, Beit El, the house of God. Now, at a place called Manahayim, the twin camps, meaning heaven and earth, the place where earth and heaven meet, like that staircase, the axis, kind of like the temple in Jerusalem, where heaven and earth come together. Now, at this moment, in the dark of night, at Peniel, face to face, God and Jacob are wrestling. Jacob is wrestling with an angel, a messenger of God, a man, or so it seems. But the text reveals to us that this man is no other than the man himself. Jacob is fighting for his life as he has done all his life. And for anything in life worth fighting for, Jacob has drawn on the strengths with which he was born. Natural strengths of hand and mind and will, buttressed by a mother for whom he could do no wrong, a mother who told him everything he did was wonderful. What is interesting as the fight goes on and on is that Jacob seems to prevail against this man who is really the man who is God. He never pins down his adversary, but at any moment it seems like he will. And finally, God does something extraordinary. When the man, that's God, saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, the meaning in Hebrew literally means saw that he could not prevail. Think about that. God saw that he could not prevail against Jacob. He touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. God puts his opponent out of action not by drawing on his own superhuman strength. I mean, all God has to do is ratchet things up a bit, and he could knock uh, Jacob to the floor instantly. He doesn't do this. God achieves his victory by disabling his opponent's strength. He dislocates his hip, and if you're wrestling, and everything is about pivoting it around on that hip joint, you're basically out of action. You can't do much to your opponent if you can't pivot. Now, those are dirty tricks. Even in wrestling, there's probably a rule against that kind of thing. But here's the interesting thing. When Jacob suddenly feels that hip go, he doesn't cry foul and call in the ref, right? Instead of struggling with his adversary or pushing him away, turning it on to a boxing match, and, and Jacob clings to him instead. He goes from one kind of clinging, pushing, pulling, to that kind of clinging which is simply embracing, holding. Now, you can have very erotic clinging. We've looked at that. You can have just a good, solid man hug, which is full of dignity, in which you're affirming 
the other without seeking to engage their space. Jacob is clinging to God, no longer pushing and pulling and trying to control the action. He's let his ego die, if you like. And in the arms of the God who has thrown that knockout punch, if you like, thrown that, made that move that has done it, he has gone from being a man of action to being a man of prayer. He has given up, surrendered, and yet he won't let go. Then he said, let me go for the day has broken. This is God. Then he said, God, let me go for the day has broken. Dawn has come after this dark night of the soul. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And God said to him, what is your name? He knows. And he said, Jacob. Then God said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. It means that God, and this is interesting, was pleased to do here something that when you look at scripture, you actually see him doing all over the place. He's pleased to take his omnipotence and simply drop a limit on it. He reigns in his power. He doesn't play his hand. He doesn't save the best for last. He restrains himself, if you like, constrains his capabilities. Now, we have had, in 2,000 years, enormous trouble theologically understanding how an omnipotent God can be God and yet reign in his potency. But in the meantime, despite all our struggle, God has no problem doing it anyway. In fact, God does it all the time, reigns in his potency, limits what he can do in a situation. And the fact that he does it all the time, restrains himself in so many countless ways, is the only reason any of us are here to talk about it, when you think about it. If God just lashed back every time any of us sinned, I guess there'd be a lot of planet for the other creatures to enjoy. I mean, it, it, <laughs> we talk about God's restraint. This is his patience. This is one of his great virtues. But it all comes down to God not being God to his full extent. So, Jacob, delivered from the striving of the ego, that restless pursuit of being in control of everything, has also been delivered from the fear that has consumed him at the prospect of seeing Esau, his long, wrong brother. Nothing gets the ego kicked up faster than being on the defensive any time. We are put on the defensive. You know that the ego is back in the center. Now, we all need an ego. You need an ego to lose an ego, we like to say. But the ego is never supposed to be in the center of our life. If it gets in the center of our life, it starts to look like that's all there is. And that's not a good place to be. So the ego has to be dethroned. 
and a lot of what God does in our lives starts with dethroning the ego, because until the ego is pushed aside, God can do nothing else with us. Jacob is afraid. These messengers have come to him and said, there's 550 men with Esau. He's on his way to you. Jacob doesn't have anything like that. He's got his family and some animals to give him. And Jacob says, what on earth am I going to do? He could kill the messengers and then take uh, Esau by surprise. 400 men, sorry, 550 animals. But um, this is interesting. He lets the messengers go back. Again, the ego is beginning to be dethroned. He kind of says, then let him come and get me. Let him know what he's up against, and we'll deal with whatever is facing us. When Esau appears on the horizon in chapter 33, it's one of the most extraordinarily beautiful moments of the gospel in Genesis, and Genesis is full of the gospel. The reconciliation with Esau, in which these two brothers run to each other to embrace, is one of these things that just, it chokes us up when we see it. And it's very like the one with Jacob's own son, Joseph, and his brothers at the end of Genesis. And it's, in turn, a foretaste of the gracious God, the Father God, who throws his dignity to the wind, limits himself, hitches up his skirts and runs to embrace his errant child in the parable of the prodigal son. Like the judge in the parable read today, we are challenged to see God then as God who does whatever he pleases to level the playing field when it pleases him, who comes down from his perch, leaves his armor behind, brings himself down to our level. But the way the game goes is he has to do something to bring us down to that point where we can begin to hear him in prayer. Now, we are all wired for the great embrace, but our path to fulfillment on heaven, on earth, is fraught with disappointments in getting there. Here on earth, there is hell on earth, if you like, or at least purgation. But the God who never really lets us go, the God who could break us in pieces and bury us in a moment simply by playing his hand, matches our strength with us, his strength, our strength with his rather, then takes us down a peg. So a real struggle is possible, a real struggle, a real embrace. When we are young, We need a strong ego. We are told, this is from Cousin Zacchaeus, that the work of the young is to wrestle with the devil and win. That's what we try to get our youth to do, to look for the devil, find the devil, find the shadow in their life, and go and wrestle with him, and through God's strength, begin to win, fight the good fight against temptation sin. But when you get old, the battle has changed. The wrestling continues, 
As Cousin Zacchaeus says, we don't wrestle with the devil anymore because we have grown old and weary and the devil has grown old and weary too and he tends to leave us alone. <laughs> well, I wish. But our job is to wrestle, to struggle with God. And when we struggle with God, we hope to lose. We hope to lose. Our God clings to us, however, wherever we are in that struggle. We try to let go of him. He will not let go of us. Whether we like it or not, something in us at the core of our beings does not like God hanging on to us. Something that says, my will be done. And sometimes that something, that someone, that I, seems like all there is. But God will not let go. And even for a bunch of deplorables like us, a beautiful turn of phrase, Luther says the same thing. We are simul justus et peccator. We are both sinners and yet loved by God. A bunch of deplorables like us. If you find yourself throwing that onto somebody else, watch out, you know, watch out. It's only when we see ourselves as deplorables that God can do anything with us. And when we're trying to hang that on somebody else, God's biding his time, waiting for his chance to get us where he wants us. When we see that if it's left up to us in our strength to save this world, there's no hope for this world at all, none. Friends, it's all about losing the ego. We're in the middle now of a political process which is so degenerated that people with talent are reduced to the level of fighting with each other on the level of pure egocentricity. There's all kinds of principles at stake, all kinds of gifts that they bring to the table but all we're seeing is the crassest battle of ego versus ego. Who's going to get their rungs on the ladder of power? Someone will, and when they do, we'll find out whatever else they had up their sleeve. But the process for us will be good. It will be purgative. It will be purifying. There's so much good and great to this beautiful nation that we're not seeing much of right now. But it's there, and we know it. And its day will come. But its day will come faster when, one by one, God claims all of us in this great land as citizens of the kingdom of God, which is the only citizenship that you or I ultimately care about. And he'll get us one by one because no political process on earth will ever turn this earth into the kingdom of God. I'm sorry, it doesn't matter what side you're on. It will not happen. We go one by one as broken human beings in faith to the throne of God. We have one leader, one king, that's Jesus. And he's very jealous of his power. 
He's biding his time right now. I do not know for how long he will continue to do it. I pray for his patience, but I also pray that the dawn will break on this nightmare we're currently going through and that there'll be much for us to learn. These two moments then, back to our text from salvation history, and then I'm done, point to one great truth that has woven its way into the fabric from day one. That even if God were to take away from you or I our strength, our primary strength, our vocation, the thing to which he called us, the means by which we make our living, he still gives us the power of invocation, of calling on his name in woe or in wealth and expecting our cry to be heard. And expecting that however the dark, the night before the dawn, that bright dawn will come at last. Hallelujah. And for even the brightest and the best among us, let's just be reminded a little humility goes a long way. It's like water in a desert these days. Let us be the dispensers of it. And let us rejoice that our salvation and that of this world ultimately rests on God's faithfulness, not our faith, and on God's mercy and not our good works. Amen.